You're listening to the Good Food CFO podcast, where we challenge the status quo of the food industry, celebrate good food founders who are building businesses on their own terms, introduce industry disruptors, and are redefining equitability. If you're ready to build your financial confidence and join the good food revolution to change the way the food industry does business, you are in the right place. I'm the Good Food CFO and your host, Sarah Delavan. Sarah, today on the show, you're talking with Aran Misrahi, who is the co-founder and CEO of Ingredient Brothers. I'm so excited for our listeners to hear it because as a former buyer yourself, I think you two like immediately kind of clicked in and it was so fascinating to listen to your conversation about the world of ingredient procurement. Oh my gosh. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Iran, who also has a finance background as well yeah. as years of experience sourcing for and growing businesses like Plated and Nuts.com and You'll hear all about that, you know, during the episode, but our discussion spanned sourcing, building a relationship with your purveyors and an approach to strategically reducing your ingredient costs that was so spot on, but also totally new to me. I just loved every second of the conversation, but before we share that, and speaking of buying, I want to talk about an article that I just read from Civil Eats, of course, one of our favorite sources of news. The article is titled, The Government Spends Billions on Food, period. Who benefits? And of course, I clicked on this title immediately when I saw it in the newsletter. And essentially what it's talking about is two weeks ago, lawmakers in both the House and the Senate introduced legislation that could transform the USDA's food purchasing processes, directing the agency to seek out not just the most affordable foods, which is its current strategy, but also to consider factors including supply chain resiliency, environmental impact, and labor policies when deciding which companies are on the receiving end of the billions of dollars that it spends on food every year. So I actually want to pause here for a second because I want to make sure that, you know, we're all on the same page with how and where the USDA is currently spending federal funds um, and why so many are calling for change. So according to the analysis, the USDA is by far the largest purchaser within the federal government. And they have programs for school meals, domestic hunger, and foreign aid accounting for more than half of total government food spending. Yeah. The Federal Good Food Purchasing Coalition just released its first report earlier this month. And that report traces how the government spent nearly $17 billion dollars on food in two separate years. So this is 2019 and 2022 that we're, that we're really looking at here. And to um, be and clear, it's not 17 billion across those years. It's 17 billion in each year. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Got it. They found that despite an executive order directing agencies to consider greenhouse gas emissions and procurement, Another executive order addressing consolidation, which we just talked about a couple of weeks ago on the podcast yeah, and hundreds of millions of dollars 
granted to small and mid-sized farms and processors over the past few years, the government isn't exactly putting its money where its mouth is. Okay. In 2022, the USDA spent nearly half of that $17 billion with just 25 vendors. Wow. Several of which represent the same multinational food companies that the Biden administration has called out for exploiting American farmers. So I want to talk a little bit about where some of that money went. Okay. Okay. 6% of the USDA's total purchases in 2022 were made on food from Cargill. Mm. So that means that Cargill received $270 million. Cargill, which is the country's largest private company and has long been accused of creating unfair markets for farmers and perpetuating deforestation in South America. That yeah. Cargill. Okay. Yep. It doesn't stop there. Okay. Tyson Foods took in 43% of the dollars spent on poultry and they were in the top five beneficiaries of spending on pork. The USDA's total spend with Tyson, $248 million. Wow. So Tyson is the largest meatpacking company in the United States and the second largest in the world. They were recently the subject of a major child labor investigation and several OSHA investigations related to medical mismanagement of their employees across essentially all of their facilities. This is fascinating. I've got one more for you. Okay. JBS and its poultry company, Pilgrim's Pride, took in $60 million on pork and chicken from the USDA in 2022. This is fascinating because more than a year ago, lawmakers asked the USDA specifically to end contracts with JBS based on accusation of criminal behavior, including, I believe, bribing government officials and using child labor in its supply chain. And when we looked into this a little bit further, we found that the agriculture secretary, Tom Vilsack, declined ending their contracts, stating that it would, quote, potentially impair the agency's ability to secure affordable food. Well, despite that statement, the Federal Good Food Purchasing Coalition has a decade's worth of proof of concept of this idea of values aligned food procurement at the city and state levels. That reminds me of the good food purchasing policy that we have here in LA that specifies that the students in the LA Unified School Districts must be served local, sustainable, humane, fair, and healthy foods. And if it can work at the city and, you know, school district levels, you know, clearly the federal government is way bigger in terms of, you know, size and purchasing power. So I totally understand why the coalition asks how they can bring this strategy of purchasing to the federal level. And the recent bills that we talked about at the, at the beginning of the episode offer a start. So Senator Edward Markey from Massachusetts was recently quoted as saying that the USDA has an opportunity to use its sizable purchasing power to address our agriculture sector's compounding crisis of agribusiness consolidation, climate change, and worker mistreatment. Markey just two weeks ago 
introduced the Effective Food Procurement Act. Now, this is legislation that could transform the agency's food purchasing processes, directing the USDA to seek out not just the most affordable foods, but also to consider factors including supply chain resiliency, environmental impact, and labor policies when deciding on which companies are on the receiving end of the billion dollars that it spends on food each year. And I think a very exciting thing is that this bill is a follow-up, so to speak, of the Strengthening Local Meat Economies Act, quite the name, that was introduced by John Fetterman from Pennsylvania in September. So the Strengthening Local Meat Economies Act, after a ramp-up period, would require the USDA to purchase at least 20% of its meat and poultry from small and mid-sized processors and to prioritize contracts with regional producers, socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers, and companies that have fair labor agreements in place. I love this legislation. Yeah, this sounds like the good food movement in action. Mm, Totally. You know? Yep. But both pieces of legislation that we've talked about here uh, have kind of a long shot of getting included in next year's farm bill, but they do represent a push to better use federal purchasing power to accelerate progress on goals that the Biden administration has stated are key to its policy vision. Right. And we've talked about them today already, including climate change, equity and improving competition and resilience. Right. So I know that we'll definitely be following this story into 2024 and and we'll keep you guys updated here on the podcast for sure. And in the meantime, if you want to learn more about the Federal Good Food Purchasing Coalition, you can visit their website at fedgoodfoodpurchasing.org. We'll include a link to that website and to the article we discussed today in the show notes. It's time for our first ever Good Food CFO book club fireside chat. It's happening next Tuesday, December 12th, inside the Good Food CFO community. This fireside chat is available to all community members, and we can't wait for you to join us to connect over our takeaways and thoughts around our first book, Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. If you haven't had a chance to read this book yet, you can still get it in our bookshop. Just visit thegoodfoodcfo.com and click on bookshop. And if you haven't RSVP'd for our fireside chat yet, you can do so inside the Good Food CFO community. We'll see you next Tuesday. And now back to the show. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. I'm super excited to talk with you today as a former buyer myself, although your background isn't quite different in terms of the businesses that you've worked for. I was excited to to read about your work history and and I'm excited to be here now to learn about what you're doing with Ingredient Brothers. Yeah, um, thanks so much. And haven't been interviewed by a buyer, so I'm uh, excited <laughs> to see uh, you know, maybe you'll catch me out on a few things. So excited, to, <laughs> excited to be here to 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 see where we go with this. Amazing. Well, the Good Food CFO is on a mission to really help move the good food movement forward. Right. So that's been in existence now for decades. Yet we still find center aisle is dominated by large corporations. 
what I like to call food like products, if you will. And, you know, I really believe and the folks on my team really believe that we need better partners in the industry. And we also need, you know, financial knowledge, financial confidence, you know, really being proactive and, and carving our own way forward, you know, in the industry in that regard, in order to really make an impact right for the good food, you know, to, to get to center aisle. And, and we also talk a lot about equitability, right. Along the supply chain. So, so speaking with someone like you, I'm like really excited to dive into that today. I, I I feel like there's so much that we could cover. (laughs) Well, let's start, let's start in the beginning. I I read that your dad actually had an import business growing up. Can you tell me a little bit about you know, how that may have influenced your work and then how you got into the industry yourself? Yeah, I think that's a it's a great starting point and definitely a huge mentor figure for me, right? And I think very privileged, you know, like people talk about luck as an entrepreneur. And I think there is like a lot of the luck is what happens to you before, right? Being able to be born into a household where, you know, my dad had originally from Israel, came from Israel to South Africa and um, it was actually when my mom was pregnant with me that he got fired and he had to figure it out. And so he landed up going from working as a salesman, selling laundry equipment to then starting his own company and start and and, and importing laundry equipment into, into South Africa. And he was importing like irons and, and washing machines and things like that, you know, and very different to food. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I got a lot of the lessons of how to run a business and was always able to ask, you know, questions. And, and, and I think entrepreneurship fascinated me from a very early age. I was always trying to sell things and start things and think about starting things. None of them were ever successful. And so, you know, like, you know, don't have those great stories of by the time he was 16, had $40,000. It was by the time I was 16, I had spent all my bar mitzvah money and, uh, and was, uh, and off to university. But uh, that definitely did help. And I had loved food again from an early age and um, had actually gone to culinary school after my first year of college. And then when I came to the US for grad school, just saw an opportunity. You know, the market is so big and never, ever thought I would be able to make that pivot. I thought my, you know, that opportunity would present itself more in the finance fields where that's where I'd been. I'd been at Deloitte, I'd been in finance and, and, you know, the miracle of the US market being so big, there's just a lot of money going into lots of different things. And I got a job at a meal kit company and one thing led to another and saw opportunity to start my own thing. And so while I was at a company called nuts.com, I made the decision that it was time to, you know, move away from from working for someone and, and try and do my own thing and try and start something. Yeah. I love what you share about the first idea of yours. Yeah. The first entrepreneurial idea wasn't necessarily a success. Mine is the same. I, I don't know that I've ever shared this, but like right out of college, I thought I'm going to start a magazine. <laughs> like, <laughs> gonna, you know, uh, I had all of these sort of, you know, ideas. I knew I would be an entrepreneur, but I didn't quite know what my business would be. Yeah. And I think similarly to you, it's as you're taking jobs that interest you, you're experiencing things, you're learning things, you're sort of taking it all in. And then in my case, I sort of stumbled into it in a way, you know, I was a, I was a buyer. I focused on like local domestic, sustainable, organic, right. Very specific. I had an opportunity with a 
startup to start to source organic on an international level. And I thought, well, this isn't something I want to do long-term, but I think knowledge of that market is something that would be benefit really helpful, me. Yeah. So I took the job and I, I had given three weeks notice to my current employer at the time. And one week before I was to start, I got a phone call that said, have you heard the news? And I said, <laughs> no, I was moving into this home now that, that I'm in. And uh, they said, well, we lost our round of funding. And so you actually don't have a job here and we're going to be oh, wow. closing down in 30 days. And so that was the start of my consulting business was I yeah. had lost a job and someone happened to be reaching out to me. Luck, if you if you want to think of it that way, someone who knew that I was a buyer and, and specialized in sourcing and and then kind of stumbled, not stumbled into, but it evolved into focusing on the on the finances, which was a, a big part of my job, you know, historically. Yeah. So it just I think it's so important to share those types of stories with people. Yeah. And I think a, a lot of it, you know, because I used to talk to my dad a lot about this when um, you know, his his route to entrepreneurship was out of necessity and he you know had lost his job and you know needed to just figure something out and and I was in a much more privileged position right and I acknowledge that and I think the big thing for me was moving into industry right I was in like the professional services industry at Deloitte which you know had an amazing time there and I think it gave me a lot but you know the benefit of being able to move into industry into roles that are you know a little bit different where you're you're actually doing you're not advising, you're doing the work and you're, you know, building sourcing teams or planning and built in supply chain, you know, gave me exposure to an industry that I was interested in, to your point, right? Find an industry that you're interested in. I was, I was less concerned about role when I joined uh, Plated. It was more about industry. I wanted to get exposure to industry. And, and, you know, once I was there, the opportunities just started coming. Like I was like, oh, wow, you could do this or you could do that. They were just so, you know, you just got exposure to a lot more you know, let's say arbitrage, as I like to say, right, places where you felt like you could add value. And that's a lot harder to do when you're, you know, in a professional services firm. And those are great jobs. And if you love that, then, you know, you should continue doing that. But at the same time, if you're looking to try and find that idea, right, it's really hard to just sit in a, a room and manifest that idea. It's, it's much easier to go into industry, then you start to see the cracks everywhere and the opportunities. So, you know, that's, definitely was something that, you know, I was frustrated about until I, I made that change and then suddenly started to see opportunities present itself. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were at nuts.com. Yeah. Was there something lacking or something missing or some like where, what was happening there that spawned this idea that, that I should go out on my own and, and create a, a business of my own? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it actually even started while I was at Plated. We had, um, as every startup does, you have struggles with margin as you scale and you start to figure out how to unlock margin potential with, with growth. And it was really frustrating to understand like what we should be paying versus what we were paying, uh, you know, and like starting to dig into that and like which suppliers were really partners, which weren't partners. And as soon as I got to Nuts, it was the same thing that happened, right? Like, you know, you had a decent sized team at nuts, but still not big enough to really do all the work that you need to do to maintain competitive pricing across 3000 products and a few hundred vendors. And that was the first like inclination, like, hold on, like, why is that? Why doesn't that exist? Like, why aren't people a little bit more, you know, partner driven, right, and try and put value, you know, equitable value across the supply chain, which is really important to me, then you add on 
compliance and a whole bunch of other different requirements. And, you know, what's interesting, and I was thinking about this morning was a lot of industries have like one or two big players, and those players have a lot of money to throw into development and to bringing an industry forward. And like within the import space, there is, but predominantly a lot of what purchases happen come from small businesses. And so there isn't this collective capital that is going into innovation as much as it is in other industries. And because they're resource constraint, they're not as easy to work with when you want to sell them new software because they have no time or people to do that because the margins are so thin that they're usually very, very, you know, they're, they're very resource constrained and not able to take on, even if someone has an amazing solution because they don't have the people to handle that. So, you know, all of that kind of swirled around my head and, and felt like, okay, like, you know, well, why don't we try to do it? And and that's how, you know, Alap and myself and he he worked at, with me at nuts.com and now, and then he went to Simply Gum. He also saw that straight away when I, when I mentioned it to him and I was like, oh yeah, hundred percent, let's go do this. And, and yeah. we did it. So tell me a bit about Ingredient Brothers. Like, what are you, what are you sourcing? How are you sourcing? Just kind of give me the the goods, the details the goods. about how, yeah, yeah I mean, how I it think, all works. You know, again, like I think from day one, we decided to focus a lot on compliance and try and bring that forward. And and we actually um, just yesterday got certified by the BRC as a as an importer. We got a double A rating, which is great. And and one of 22 importers in the US, right, to be certified. And I think that just comes down again to this resource, you know, problem that we were trying to solve. And so what we did was we landed up building a fairly large global team. And so we have people, you know, all over the world in South America and Southeast Asia working with us. And what we really offer is uh, the ability for us to become an extension of your sourcing team and try and integrate, uh, we try and integrate as much as possible with our customers. And that is everything from, you know, working with them on sourcing new ingredients to designing supply chains that work for them and then managing a lot of the inventory and compliance, right? And then being as proactive as we can be with all of those steps, right? And we're nowhere near where we want to be, but that's that's the goal and we keep pushing that forward. In terms of products that we import, I think we're up to about 60 products now. We import from about 12 different countries. Uh, we do spices, coconut-based products, specialty flowers, starches, freeze-dried products. So lots of different ingredients around the natural food space, you know, is what we work with. Lots of seeds too. Okay. Interesting. And when, you know, some information I read about, about the business is that transparency is quite important yeah. to you. What elements and details are you making transparent to your customers? And is there two-way transparency? Is that a thing that, that matters in your business? Yeah, I think that's what we're finding is that that two-way transparency is, is something that really does matter because, you know, we need to feed information to our suppliers the more we're able to feed to them, the better they're able to equip themselves, right? And come back with solutions. And so I think that's definitely some of the issues that we find is like, in order for us to be fully transparent, we also need our customers to be transparent. And so we're finding that balance between the two, but, you know, in terms of transparency, like we're, you know, obviously incredibly transparent with all of our QA and our documentation and all of our procedures and all of our vendors documentation and, and how we're onboarding our vendors you know, we give a lot of transparency with regards to inventory management. So we're going to show you what inventory we have in production. What do we have on the water that's, you know, designated for you? And what do we have in on the, in the warehouse that's designated for you? And we're working with you on an ongoing basis so that, you know, our hope is that over time we can reduce our 
customer's inventory balance, right? Because they know that we're holding some of that, right? Rather than having a lot of inventory at the customer, a lot of inventory at our warehouse and a lot of inventory at the, at the, at the source, like hopefully we can start to balance that out with better planning. And so a lot of our focus is on planning and, and working hand in hand with our customers on that. That's really interesting. It seems like your customers having things like a forecast is important to the success of your work and the work that you do together. And listeners yeah. of this podcast hear me talk about forecasting ad nauseum, but I, I've never spoken to someone in your position about the importance of it. So can you talk a little bit about that, the role that it plays, you know, for, for we'll say the food business itself, and then also for yeah. you and your suppliers? Yeah, and I think the biggest issue is that everyone knows it's so important and so then they don't want to send anything that they feel is not perfect. Mm. And that is the biggest issue that we found is that like everyone's holding on to this forecast that they have, but they're like, oh, I just need to like polish it. But forecast is always wrong, right? It's, that's like fine. But you just need some benchmark and like, you know, something that you can measure over time and, and, and start to understand how that business works. And so, you know, in theory, we'd love forecasts from everyone and we'd love people to be open on data, but then, you know, we are building our own database as we start to see orders and order patterns and start to understand someone's business that, you know, we can almost predict, Hey, like, you know, usually order 50 pounds of this a month. Like, why haven't you ordered this month? Is everything okay? Are you running out of inventory? And then a lot of times like, Oh, we actually forgot. So let's place the order. Right. Or you're right. We need to order it or something's happening. And so I think planning in general is, is, I mean, I love planning. I'd probably start every day with a bit of planning because I think it's, it's therapeutic for me. It like helps me constrain myself. And, and I think that, you know, that plays into forecasting. It's, it's not about being right, but just, you know, constantly going back to that plan and, and making small adjustments, I think really helps, you know, run any business. Yeah. And I remember, you know, when I was buying, there were negotiations often up front, at least, right? Like, Hey, you know, okay, I want to buy these items from you. The, the question that my vendor is asking is, well, how much are you going to buy and how yeah. frequently, right? And so if I have my historical data at the very least, I can say, well, historically, this is what we've purchased and this is the cadence in which we purchase them. And then we get a price quote based on that. Yeah. There's benefit to that. I think there's benefit to, to knowing this is how we plan to grow in the future. You know, and I just, I'm a huge proponent of, of transparency all the way through and, and real partnership, I think is yeah. what can be the result of that transparency. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, you know, definitely partnership leads to so much more value, right? It's great to save some money in the short term by switching and moving things around. But I think consist consistency and continuity with suppliers makes a huge difference, right? And I do think that, you know, giving giving your suppliers access to forecasts or some understanding is is really important. A lot of our products are actually, you know, very seasonal, like chia seeds will get harvested once a year. And so you have to work with your customers and they have to give you a number. And I think, you know, what we're trying to do now is make people feel more comfortable with the commitments that they're making, because, you know, if things go wrong, we know things will go wrong, right? And that, you know, that there'll be a year where they don't sell as much. Like, what are we going to be able to do? Like, obviously we want you to sign a contract, but at the same time, like, we're never going to hold you against the wall if you don't have sales, right? We're going to try and work with you to solve these things. And I think that level of comfort as you build that trust, I think really helps because, yeah, you can't plan for everything, right? You just don't know what will happen. But at the same time, you've got to at least put a stick in the ground so that you can communicate that to the suppliers and ensure that you can secure some product. And 
you know, then we'll deal with all the problems that come down the line, which is inevitable, right? Yeah. You know, supply chain is, uh, is faultless. Yeah. From the, from the sourcing side of things, are you working directly with, for example, farmers that are growing and harvesting chia seeds, or are you working with, you know, sub- other suppliers, for example, in, in the countries that you're working in? Yeah. I mean, I think you tend to find a, a balance with food. You know, if you have to imagine that most companies, if they own a processing plant, will likely not farm enough to keep that processing plant fully utilized. And so they're likely also supplementing this with buying from other farmers. And so we're working with the processor. Most of our processors will own some farms themselves and will utilize those to bring in raw material. But at the same time, they're working with other farmers, right, to consolidate some of that raw material. And so, you know, most of our customers are the the processor, you know, that's who we're auditing and we're making sure that their inbound processes are correct and they're validating their raw material correct and they're doing all the right testing. But, you know, we aren't working directly, directly with farmers on the ground as much as I think people would love to believe. But, you know, realistically, it's it's really hard just to keep track of the 20 processes that are in Paraguay. And now you've got to add like another few thousand farmers that makes the job it makes it really hard to get good information and start to figure out who you should be working with. Yeah. I think it's a very interesting thing to dig into, right? When, and I don't know your experience with this, but whenever I work with a founder who's starting a business, it's a new business, right? They want yeah. the most sustainable packaging. They want farm direct sourcing. They they have the highest standards and the highest hopes for their product. And then usually you start to do the numbers and you say, okay, this is this glass bottle is quite expensive or, you know, what have you. And you say, okay, well I'll launch with maybe a a subpar packaging for now. And I'll, you know, move forward. You may be sourcing directly from a farmer in your area in the beginning, right. Or directly from a farmer yourself, like a coffee company, for example, right. Going direct to the farm. I think the deeper the founder goes, the, the more the business grows or they want to grow the business you begin to understand the limitations on the farm and also the high cost and expectations. Right. And I think you kind of were hinting at that. Like if the end user wants full transparency and that farm needs to provide that transparency certifications, whatever it might be to every single person that they're selling to, that becomes a very big burden on the, on the farm and the farmer. It's a whole long thing, right? This, this, you know, we could talk about this alone for hours, which is how you balance product development as a founder, you know, and I think there's multiple angles that people come up, you know, start food businesses, you, you know, obviously there's some people who have certain recipes that they've perfected and they're like, this product would be great for market and they try and go to market. And then you have, to your point, someone who's like, you know, I wish I could buy coffee that told this story, right? And they believe that it could tell that story. I think, you know, maybe I'm a little cynical sometimes. And so, you know, I think that a push consumers will vote with their wallets and they will tell you what they like. And I think that you will see shifts in mass on, uh, you know, things in the, in the center aisle and where, you know, where improvements need to happen. I just think they are slower than what some founders want. And so then what you tend to happen is rather than changing one or two attributes in a product that will you know, maybe increase the price by 10%. It's not going to be exactly what you want long-term, but it will get you somewhere closer to your vision 
I think that is where like I, you know, that's where I vote and I say, okay, yeah, that's a great idea because I think to your point, like even as a, as a founder, you don't have the resources all the time to manage such complex supply chains. And so if you're doing, you know, the coffee was probably not the best example because single source ingredient, yeah. but if you're doing a, a product with 10 ingredients, you know, pick your poison, find the one that you want to stand against and yeah, invest that time. But for the others, I think, you know, you need to look where the market has gone. There is a lot of benefit to moving away from some of the mass stuff that's happening, right? Like, especially in the long ingredient list and making things a little bit more, a little cleaner. But that doesn't mean that, you know, if you're buying organic coconut flour from like this massive producer that they're doing it terribly and that they're not buying great coconuts that are, you know, sourced really well and that you can't stand behind. It may not be the ideal of what you mm -hmm. want long-term, but at the same time, it will get you closer to that price point to get you closer to being on the shelf and being competitive and and hopefully allowing the consumer to be less elastic with with the price difference and you know so i, I see that I, I see that happen a lot with you know second time food founders mm -hmm. because you learn as a as a first time founder where to pressure test certain things where not to and i think that that you know it just comes with experience and and starting to understand and starting to understand your category and those ingredients yeah. And I think, you know, I'm thinking of a couple of clients right now, the, the willingness to say, okay, I founded my company on these principles. Let's just say I'm a regional brand, yeah. right? I'm a regional brand in terms of how I source, but now I'm growing into a national company yeah. and I'm selling my product through a distributor. I'm producing my product with a co-packer, right? So these, these layers then start to get added. And with each layer, there's a bit more cost. And yeah. so being curious, which is something you said in an article that I, that I read in preparation yeah. for this conversation is that something that you, you know, recommend that, that founders are is curious. And for me, I said, ah, I'm thinking of that curiosity of, okay, what if I went to a co-packer? What if instead of peeling, chopping, and pureeing these regional ingredients, I found a partner who already has this vegetable yeah. pureed, right? And just being, I think step number one is asking the question, what if? And then saying to yourself, okay, maybe I'm not a regional brand in terms of my sourcing anymore, but can I still build this business on the the values that are most important to me can i still feel really proud of what i'm sourcing and where i'm sourcing from and can the company evolve that way so that it can have financial success yeah i think that's a great point and i think you know you need to figure out early on with your you know your product list what are the standards and does this ingredient that i'm using how does that scale and what access do I get at certain points? And, you know, I think at Plated, that was a hard problem to solve because we had a meal kit, you know, we were at the beginning of meal kit journey. So obviously we wanted everything to match every certification and be the best. And what we land up realizing in certain categories is that, you know, that making those statements limited us to 1% of the supply in the US. And so you may not want to go and buy the worst, you know, let's call it the worst beef in the US, which is, you know, factory farmed and really not great, you know, like animal husbandry. But then 
the one percent between the one percent and that there's a lot in between and so mm -hmm. if you suddenly put yourself in the one percent you're you're so limited from a negotiation standpoint from a partner standpoint from an access standpoint and so i think you know that curiosity people are willing to talk about ingredients all day and about supply chain i think finding those suppliers who will have those conversations with you so you can understand hey for this ingredient like is this the right standard that i'm buying to you know is this what everyone buys to okay what is does that brand buy to that you know this this same standard and what access does this give me to, you know what, what does this limit my access right because i think that that over time you know you're going to have to make those sacrifices anyway if you want to succeed there's very little chance that you can get around that in order to get margins so figure out at the beginning so that you know where to make your bets right take your bets and invest the time to maybe build out a supply chain in one of those ingredients so that you can have that claim that you want to make. Yeah. I think it's interesting too. One of the things we talk about here is you can build a business on, on your terms. And part of that means to whatever size Correct. you feels right for you, you know? And so I think, you know, one of the things is like, you can buy that top 1%, right? That, yeah. that beef that is just you could drive down the road and you, you know, it's grazing on a hill, but because of our understanding of the cost of food or, or what the price of food should be, and also just simply what's affordable to people, yeah. right? How many people are you trying to feed? Who are you trying to feed? Can they afford this? How many hands is your product going through from, let's just say the, the ranch to the consumer, right? So I think knowing what kind of business you're trying to build Right. And, and all of those other elements, I think they, they all play a part into what you were just talking about. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's a big, you know, there's a big spectrum between McDonald's and 11 Madison park. Yeah. And both of those are successful businesses and you just have to find it. Right. And I think that intersection is where I think a lot of founders lie to themselves and they're like, yeah, someone's going to be willing to pay three times the price for this. And you're like, yeah, there are people, but if you're modeling this out as a venture backed business, and you're telling people you're going to go and sell to X huge CPG brand, you need to be honest with yourself then about yeah. what is that price point you need to hit for the consumer that you're trying to get to? Because yeah, you can build a great lifestyle business, not, or I mean, it may not even be a lifestyle business, right? America's big. There's enough people to purchase even that, you know, really expensive beef. I think it's just figuring out who your customer is and what are you trying to sell them? Yeah. A huge, huge part of it. Right. And so it's, we talk a lot about knowing what you're trying to build, as I said a moment ago, because it informs so many of these decisions that you are talking about. And I love, you know, what you said there about, you know, be honest with yourself about who you want to be, what your long-term goals are. We always talk about coconut cult on the podcast because they have like yeah. $26 coconut yogurt. It's unique. It's extremely high end, right? I'd be interested to know, you know, how they're sourcing. And I haven't really yeah. looked into, into all of that. But I mean, we know the guys there, um, so I won't say too much, but I think again, like, yeah, it's an amazing product and they seem to be, you know, doing incredibly well and growing and it is a specific customer. And again, like I, I, maybe I'm not the customer, but they definitely seem to find some fit within the market that is, makes sense for them. And that's great. And I think, again, like they have a, you know, seem to have a clear understanding of who that is. Yeah. Right. And so they're super focused and are pushing forward on that, but you just need to know, right. And, and I'm sure behind there, 
you know, investor deck, there is that model, right? Shows that, hey, like there are enough people and customers to buy yoga that costs this much and and they're pushing forward with that. And I think it comes down to that founder having that understanding and then, yeah. and then pushing forward with that. On the topic of, I'll call it collaboration and transparency with the businesses that you work with, one of the things you've also mentioned in in some articles that I've been reading is when you understand what their margins are or what their target margins are, right? then it provides an opportunity to collaborate and yeah. to 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 source the right products for them to help help them meet those goals i think that you know the vegetable puree is a pretty good example of that right can you talk a little bit about what that looks like for, for you and your customers? Is it something that you actively do with everyone yeah, I mean, or is it? I think we do that quite a lot, right? Which is trying to figure out, again, like it helps us too, right? Because it helps us, you know, build a moat and, you know, secure and secure business. So we're not, you know, we're not blind about that. But I think it, again, we're trying to add value throughout the supply chain, right? And that includes ourselves, right? I think it's a misnomer that, you know, you can try and beat down costs so that the importer makes no money and then the right. brand makes all the money and the same with, you know, the retail chains, right? Everyone has to have value and it's just about figuring out where that value is for everyone. And I think that's what we spend a lot of time with our, you know, with our customers on. And I think from a product development standpoint, if we can get in early enough, then that's where we can recommend certain things over others right like have you you know thought about using this protein powder over that because there's source of supply is a lot easier or if you're developing with coconut cream i like to push for if you're making something that's being diluted and homogenized again use the highest fat because it's less water and you're just shipping water around the world but we do a lot of that and i think it's it, it's in our best interest right like it's not about short at short-term profits we're trying to build long-term relationships and long-term value and at the same time i think a lot of the margin stuff is just based on personal experience where you know had some of our partners helped us on the margin side it would have extended our runway and made us more profitable and helped us you know stay in business with them a lot longer and i think that you know that's really important right you know you got to have integrity because even if you are charging more at least show the path mm -hmm. so that they can understand you know and i think that that's really important and it's something that a lot of people don't don't necessarily do. Yeah. I think it's interesting that your culinary education, that background, it seems like it's it's extremely helpful in the role that you're in now. I mean, I just love food. So <laughs> maybe, I think it's just because like I, I have I just love food. Yeah. So maybe but I, <laughs> but like the fact that you're like, you know, you want to use the highest fat, you know, coconut milk, you don't want to be shipping water yeah. around around the, the world. It's like not everyone's going to give you that advice. Right. I think that comes with with the with the culinary education. And, you know, here's the other thing. It's like there are a lot of founders who have a great product, but yeah. they don't necessarily think about things like that, like what you yeah. just said. You know, I think so. it's almost like a value add in, in a sense of. You know, and it goes back to, I think, too, saying like, what if and being curious and saying, what if we, you know, used this instead of that? What just what if? Right. And and kind of being yeah. being creative because margin is so critical. Yeah. No matter what you say. Yeah. yeah. It's so critical. And the ways of, you know, one thing we talk about and maybe you can talk a bit about this, too. 
scale, right? Everyone says, well, my margins are really low right now, but once we scale, we'll be profitable. And we've had folks, you know, on, on the podcast who say, well, scale for my product. One of the ingredients that I'm using, I need to buy a train car full (laughs) of it. I need to buy 5,000 pounds or whatever it is. Right. And I think that there's this idea of when I buy more, I'll save but no one ever knows what more is like, what is the amount and how much are you going to save? So they're sort of relying on this imaginary future, as I call it, to sort of make their business profitable or, or improve their, their product margins. What are your thoughts on, on this? I mean, I hear that and I get, I also understand from the founder's perspective, right? That they have to believe that at certain scale, they will unlock more value. I think to your point, the question of when that happens is really hard to map out. And for a lot of companies, that is at a place where you're like almost close to exit potentially mm-hmm. for certain ingredients. You know, that does get scary. And so maybe I do think that for every commodity, it's very different, right? And so unfortunately, there's no easy answer for this. And, you know, if you're talking about salt, you likely will get to parity really quickly because salt is, uh, you know, traded a lot. And so you can start to understand what you're paying, but you're likely not using a lot of salt. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, as long as you're prioritizing on your top ingredients and, you know, making an assumption here that one of your, one or two of your ingredients makes up like 80% of your costs, I think that is where you focus your time and figure out what is this price going to be when you get to scale. And you can... I, you know, I would challenge anyone that if you have two ingredients that make up 80% of your cost or 60% of your cost, you'll be able to figure out at least something. And that will give you a sense of at what volume, at what scale, right? It is different for everyone. If you're making a product with many ingredients that are equally distributed, it's really hard. But if you're making something that majority of it is coconut cream, then that's a lot easier to, you know, have those conversations. So you will not have good margins at the beginning because volume does drive cost savings. The efficiency is not really the volume, right? I think that's the misnomer. It's the administrative burden of managing a startup from my side that makes that's the overhead that that I think a lot of distributors are putting in and like what we're hoping to solve over time, which is to try and reduce that overhead because you know we have the stock, we can sell the stock and we should be charging you the same amount. The problem is that it just takes a lot of time. It takes the same amount of time to sell you almost 50 pounds that it does 20,000 pounds. And that's right. what that's why the margin delta exists. And so, you know, over time, hopefully we'll solve some of that. But, you know, that's what drives the pricing down is is the administration burden. And so, yeah, I think founders can figure it out. It just focus on your top SKUs and or top ingredients and and see, you know, what information you can find out. I think that's great advice. We've never, I've never really thought about it as, you know, looking at, do I have, you know, five ingredients and I use them equally in my product or do I have one to two, you know, products yeah. that make up that, that 60 to 80% of, of what I'm Correct. producing. And, and what I also hear you saying is that you can, I think if you have a forecast, right. Or you have a sense of this is how I want to grow over yeah. time. You can have conversations with your, your buyer, we'll just say with course, ingredient yeah. brother, brothers, for example, here to say, okay, what is the volume I need to get to, to see some savings? And what is that savings projected to be at this point? Because, and the reason I give founders such a hard time on saying I'll make money when I scale is, is because they don't know what that 
the when is, they don't know how much, they don't know what the savings is going to be. And they also then don't know how much money do I need to get me from today to that point? You know, you, it's sort of these, these missing pieces. Yeah, exactly. That cash flow planning and, and that uh, the accounting stuff, right. I'm very grateful that I am an accountant and, 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 you know, obsess about the financials because it does give us give us a lot more visibility at Ingredient Brothers. I'll, I'll say one thing on the product development side that I think is a good point that, you know, sometimes I'll challenge founders to take their bill of materials and then take like the largest player in their space, take theirs too, right? Some rough estimate of theirs and try and like put down the prices side by side. And if you suddenly see a really big imbalance and I'll give the best example is sweeteners, right? So- mm-hmm. <laughs> Big company is going to use sugar or corn syrup, and that's going to yeah. cost you. I'm making this up, twenty cents a pound, and the product costs you a dollar, so it's twenty percent of the product. And your product has uses organic sugar from the mountains of somewhere, and it costs eighty cents a pound. And so there is no way you're going to flip that. And so then your relative cost will never go down for that, and you need to be okay you need to understand that relative to the competition, you know? So if you're using a, you know, let's say some flour and, and you, now you're going from conventional to organic, that premium may be 10%. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. Right. I'm like, I've increased the, the, there's a premium to it. It's, there's a label, it's organic. I feel good that the customer will pay. If you take a sweetener that no one knows, or like no one may understand the benefit of, and now it becomes 80% of your bill of materials, one, it's never going to go down. And two, no one may care. And so then like that's where that imbalance where I get, I'm like, why are you doing this? What benefit are you getting? There's no scale reversal. Why is there no scale reversal on that? I mean, likely it's just a highly specialized sweetener that hasn't reached any sort of meaningful scale, right? And so, you know, a lot of something like that may be sold in good food stores or as like a, you know, like, a single ingredient thing it's not actually used a lot in manufacturing and when you use something in manufacturing that's when you gain real scale and i think that that you know when you find that sometimes that's a big red flag for me especially on you know when you're com- comparing it to some really commoditized products within within an ingredient label that's really interesting because i think that in the good food space we we probably have a lot of founders that are experiencing that and and don't yeah realize it right they're using a sweetener or a a substitute for sugar you know just as a very easy example as you're saying and it's not in a lot of manufacturing for other businesses and so what you're saying is the likelihood then of the volume just being there because you you as the you as the supplier like i i'm only bringing this in for you right essentially it's going to take a very long time to get to a point where yeah, and we it's can just bring like the up. sugar market is so mature and, you know, some other sweeteners market is not as mature and it could it could be used a little bit in manufacturing, but it's still, it's just the relative maturity of the market is so big and the impact it has on your bill of materials versus the impact it has on their bill of materials, the sweetener is so out of yeah. proportion that you, you, you just, you need to understand the sacrifices you're making. And if you, if you're good with that, then that's fine. But it's just like, where are you going to put the effort? Where are you going to get the reward if you have a product that has, and again, like you have a coconut based something, people are going to care about the coconut because it's 80%. Mm-hmm. 
And if you're using 5% sweetener, but it's costing you a crazy amount, are they going to put as much weight into that versus the coconut? I don't know. And I'm just, I like to push on yeah. all of those. I have no idea that I'm not a, you know, retail is very difficult and I have a lot of respect for anyone attempting retail, but it's just things, those are the things I push at from a supply chain perspective. And yeah. I'm sure my answer is wrong, but it's somewhere in the middle. I think that that's such a great question to ask and such a great exercise for founders, you know, like very much so. I, I, I like for founders to take a very like exacting look at many of the things in their business. And I think this is a question that hasn't been posed yeah. in any conversation that I've been a part of. And so I think it's a very interesting thing to think about. And I'd love to hear from any of the founders listening, you know, <laughs> have you, have you asked yourself this question? Have you examined this? And and does thinking about it now change anything, you know, yeah. for you in terms of the product mix or how you think your scaling the product may affect your profitability. I think, I think it's really interesting. I think the last question that I have for you is just about the, the size of the businesses that you work with at ingredient brothers. I mean, I understand from the, from the position of a consultant, right? Like we can't, I can't help everyone who wants to work with me because I, the, the one-on-one -on -one consulting will just frankly be out of the price yeah. range for some people. I wonder if, you run into things like that being a bootstrapped business do you need to to be a company of a certain size to to work with yeah unfortunately like you you hit the nail on the head right i think it's it would be amazing if we could work with everyone right now and like we are trying to build that business but we have to be super focused and prioritized to ensure that we grow and i think you know when it comes to like really early stage startups like the best we do is time and try and like help guide people to other partners that we know are better equipped to help them. Um, you know, I always like to say I'm one degree of separation from all the ingredients. And so, you know, we try and like in make introductions and give people access to other suppliers that they may not have thought of because it's really hard to find yeah. um, suppliers online. And then, you know, as they grow and mature and they're getting into those longer runs, that's when we really start to have those conversations. And so we do work with, I would call them like early to mid-stage startups, right? That are you have gotten scale, have gotten some distribution or doing larger runs, have got a little bit of production planning so that it's easier for us because we don't hold a lot of inventory that's not allocated to customers. And so we need planning and we need a forecast and we need an understanding. And so I think that's where we fit in. And then, you know, we also have surprisingly what we didn't expect is like a lot of our customers are $1 billion plus in revenue, mm -hmm. big businesses that are just they need extra resources to come and help on the on the strategic sourcing side and just take a lot of that burden out and like you know be that that sourcing you know arm for them and so we found like a good niche in all of those and i think you know my aim over time is to hopefully move more and more into the smaller companies because like those are the ones that become the big companies and yeah. those are the ones that need the most help it's just building the technological infrastructure to make the sales process much easier for everyone so that they can get access to the right information, make the purchase without needing to, let's say, increase our overheads significantly so that it doesn't make sense. And so that's you know really what we're pushing towards. Yeah. Well, this has been a really lovely conversation. I'm so thankful for you for, for joining me for a while today. Yeah. Thanks so much. I had a, I had a blast. It was a lot of yeah. fun. 
Is there a spot where folks can go to learn more about Ingredient Brothers, you, you know, and any any place we should direct our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, ingredientbrothers.com and then we're very, very active on LinkedIn. Um, and so, you know, if you go into LinkedIn, LinkedIn and check out our page, you'll, you'll find out everything you need about us. Amazing. Well, thank you, Aran. I so Thanks appreciate so much, you. Have a great day. Awesome. You too. Bye. You can hear Sarah's full conversation with Iran as a Plus member inside the Good Food CFO community. When you upgrade to Plus membership, you get access to full-length episodes, bonus clips and bonus episodes, live Q&As with podcast guests, and even attend live podcast recordings. To learn more about our Plus membership, visit thegoodfoodcfo.com slash join. Thank you for joining us here today. If you enjoyed this episode or found it helpful or inspiring in any way, please share it with your founder friends on social and rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. It's the number one way to help good food founders find the show. We'll be back with a brand new episode next week.